Good morning, everyone. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. And as you do, I just want to let you know that I, there is nowhere this morning that I would rather be than with you worshiping the Lord. Uh, this, the past several days, I've been in the state of Georgia at a conference with roughly 9,000 other people. And during that conference, we sang some of the same exact songs we sang this morning. And by God's grace, that was such an encouraging thing to be filled with a room large enough to fit that many people with that many voices declaring the goodness of God. But there is nowhere that I would rather be than worshiping with you. I am so grateful that the Lord has brought this flock together. Last night, I didn't think I was going to make it home uh, because, not because I was in any danger, but because my flight got canceled. Uh, coming back from Georgia, I had rushed to the airport when I got an email saying that it might because of inclement weather. And then as soon as I got to the airport, I had been at a wedding yesterday afternoon. I got to the airport in Atlanta as quickly as I could. And when, as soon as I walked in, the board flipped to my flight saying canceled. And I looked on the board and there was one other flight that was to New York of, with my airline and it said departing. And so I rushed to the gate, and I was praying the entire way that the Lord would allow me to get on. And I got there, and the guy said, look, we only have two more seats on this plane, and we've, everyone's already on board. They're getting ready to pull away. I've got two more seats, and they're both above your pay grade. Um, but you know what? Okay, no problem. I'll let you on. And so not only did I get a seat on the plane, there were two seats left, and one of them was mine, and the other one was the one next to me. So I literally had more room than anyone but the pilot on that flight. And the Lord got me home safely, and I'm so grateful to be here to worship with you, because I love worshiping with you. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this flock, that you have built this church, that it is your doing, that you have promised you would build your church universal but Lord, you have also been the one who has constructed this body and you bring people to yourself in salvation and you bring people to this location so that we might join together and we might worship you together. And Lord, today as we look at the scriptures together, as we go through Second, First Samuel chapter 2, Lord, I just ask that your word would speak to us. We thank you, Lord, that you have communicated by your word. And now as we look to it, we ask, Father God, that it is you that would be heard, that there would be no distraction, that there would be no miscommunication, that there would be no confusion, but there would be clarity that this is what God has for us. So, Lord, I ask that you would speak today through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, I read an article that was entitled something like, Nine Ways That You Are Reading Books Wrong. I don't normally read list articles like that, especially ones that have bad grammar like that in the title. Uh, but then I looked at this one and I thought, you know, I actually read a lot of books and I should probably determine whether or not I know how to do this whole reading thing. So I read the list and I was actually uh, quite surprised to find that it was an excellent article. And some of the things that they suggested were things like, before you even read, you need to do pre-reading. You need to know the position of the author. You need to try to see if there is an agenda being promoted. What is the context of the writing of this book? Is it just for fun, or is it something that they were writing in response to an event? Uh, what is going on in the author's cultural life? Are they attempting to push some sort of a, some sort of a contextual cultural movement? 
Now, you might think that this kind of pre-reading is what you should do for technical books or for theological books or for scholarly books, but I agree with the author of this article. That's what you should be doing with every book that you read. 1 Samuel was written by man. Many people believe that 1 Samuel was written, the first several chapters, the ones that reference Samuel's life, were written by Samuel, who many think also wrote the book of Ruth and the book of Judges, and that after Samuel's death, that that was picked up by the prophet Nathan. That's what many people believe. I don't know that that's true, and there is no one alive today who can say with certainty who penned these words, but what we do know is the ultimate author, the communicator behind the author, is God himself, and we do know his agenda. He is writing this book to point to the fact that there is a good king coming to set up a good kingdom. That is the agenda of this book. It is all pointing to Jesus Christ. So that article that I was telling you about, it was pretty good, and I nodded my head as I was reading it thinking, you know, I actually already do a lot of these things. I could probably tune up a few of them. But then I got to the last point of the article. I think it was the ninth one. And it said something like this. You don't read the whole book. That was the subsection title. And I thought to myself, you know what? I don't need to even read past the headline here because the only time I stop reading in the middle of a book is if it's either completely unhelpful or if it's bad for my sanctification. So if I stop one, it's for a reason. But then I realized how ironic it would be for me to read an entire article except for the last point and skip it because it's about not finishing what you read. So I read it, and it was not what I expected at all. It said that the biggest issue with most readers is that they skip the introduction, the preface, and or the prologue of the book. And that immediately erased hundreds of books from my list of books I thought I had finished. Apparently I have to go back and actually read the prologues and the introductions to actually complete them. Introductions and prefaces and prologues, they are generally very carefully crafted by the author. It's not just wasted space on the pages of those books. They are there to give a direction as you move into the body of the book. It's like a compass in the hand of the reader, revealing how you're supposed to make your way and navigate through the arguments on the pages that follow. It's like a personal letter from the author, encouraging you to think in the same way that they do. 1 Samuel chapter 1 is a prologue of the main story of what's going on in the book of 1 Samuel. It's not about David. It's not even necessarily about Samuel. It's about Samuel's mother and about his origin story. But our text today is like the introduction of the book where all of the themes, every one of them, is foretold here. And it comes to us in the most personal of ways. It comes to us in the form of a prayer from the lips of a woman who had been educated in God's school of sanctification through suffering. And here is the place where we see all of Hannah's spiritual growth put on display in doxological worship but to also how God has chosen to reveal and display and foretell everything that's going to happen over the rest of this book, over the rest of the Old Testament, and indeed even over the rest of history. So don't overlook the introduction. Don't downplay the value of prayer, the prayer that we're about to read. It is an incredible declaration of God through Hannah to teach us not just important things, but ultimate things. What we're about to read is the prayer that Hannah had prayed when she dedicated her son to the Lord and left him there. Imagine the heart of a mother who has desired for so many years to have a son, and now she is leaving him there. And this is the prayer, the broken-hearted, somber, but loving, joyful heart of Hannah as she prays to the Lord. Please join me as I read, beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. This is God's passionate and pure and poetic self-revelation revealed through the Holy Spirit and through the mind of Hannah and perfectly preserved today for your edification. This is God's word. 
Verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, and my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. In order to understand this poetic prayer, we're going to focus in here on three main truths that Hannah is proclaiming. Number one, exult in the Lord. Number two, God exalts the humble. And number three, God exalts his son. Point number one is exult in the Lord. Now, I used to live in the city of Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, It's the 27th largest city in our country, about the size of Portland, Oregon. And while I was there, I made sure that I learned the way to pronounce the city of Louisville like the people who live there. But now, when I come back to New York and I say Louisville, people look at me as though I am a hillbilly. And they say, do you mean Louisville? And I say, nope, I mean Louisville. Well, when I say the word exult, that we must exult in the Lord, that is not just me pulling out my Kansas accent. Exult is not the same as exalt. The first line of Hannah's prayer says, my heart exults in the Lord. Well, what does that even mean? That's not a word that I ever use in my normal life. Exult means to gain joy from something. It means that you, exalt means that you lift something up, but exult means that it lifts you up in your soul. So if you're a Mets fan, one of the greatest moments for you was Unfortunately, all the way back in 1986, there hasn't been a lot of them since then. I'm sorry. But one of the greatest moments for you would have been in 1986, Bill Buckner misses the ball, and it goes right between his legs. If you were watching that moment, can you just identify yourselves? Many of you in this room were watching this, and I know some of you who just raised your hands, and I know the level of insanity that can come from a fan who loves their team in the way that they did. And when you saw that moment, and you realize game six is over, and the Mets are going to win this championship, you know that what you did was outrageous. You began screaming. You began shouting. You began calling your friends. You began pumping your fists in the air. You began rejoicing. Whether you were in the stadium or you were alone at your house, you know who you are, and you know how you responded. But that's not exulting. The outward stuff that you see there is not exulting. 
the inward stuff, the joy that you felt, the delight that you felt when you saw him miss that ball, that is exulting. It's the celebratory inward act of delighting in what God is doing. That's what we're seeing here, not what Bill Buckner is doing. Hannah says that her heart exults in the Lord. It is God himself that is the center of her prayer. It is God himself that is the center of her joy. Look, Samuel was a blessing. She wanted Samuel. She delighted in the fact that God had given her a son. And she was overwhelmed with thankfulness for him. But she doesn't even mention him here as the reason her heart is overwhelmed with joy. She's overwhelmed with joy in the Lord. That is what causes her to exult. Every once in a while, I'll come across a video of a soldier who has come back home from a long deployment, and I, I think I'm getting a little bit more sappy every day I get older, and those videos always catch my attention, and always I, you know, I always try to like not let people see my eyes as I'm watching them, but you know what happens. Sometimes there are elaborate schemes. They put themselves in some kind of a position where they surprise their family members, or sometimes they just go and they knock on the front door, but those videos are always filled with joy and tears and hugs and kisses, and it's a beautiful thing to see a family together that loves each other. Now, imagine if a father had just come home from a six-month deployment and he surprised his seven-year-old son, and he gave him a small toy, and immediately the boy runs back into the house with the toy, doesn't say thank you, doesn't even hug the father, just goes and becomes enamored with the gift. That's exactly what most of us do when we get a gift after we pray for it. We cease delighting in the Lord, and we start delighting in that he gives us. We just get excited about the stuff that he provided. But Hannah serves as an excellent example for us. It was the giver, not the gift that her heart treasured most. And she said, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. It was her salvation, not her son, that was the cause of her lasting joy in her heart. And she cries out, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Prayers like that are shaped over long periods of time. I don't believe that she just for the first time, thought these thoughts the day that she delivered Samuel to Eli. I believe that these thoughts were things that she was thinking of every single day as she was aware, this child of mine is going to be given to Eli, and I'm going to leave him behind, and what am I going to say to God on that day? Her heart has been well prepared for this moment. She doesn't burst out ecstatically in poetic praise on accident or by a whim. This prayer was the product of literal years of Hannah having her heart, her heart and mind trained to understand and trust the Lord. Notice that Hannah's prayer rightfully puts God right at the epicenter of literally everything. Everything that happens, he is at the center. Everything that is good, he is at the center. Everyone who is judged, he is at the center. Her entire focus here is on God not on herself. Her prayers are God-centered. Every time a person is raised up or brought low, strength, weakness, power, poverty, life, death, all of these things, Hannah says, everyone comes from the sovereign hand of God alone. Now, you might think that in a situation like her, the main of her view of God here would be generosity. Like, if, if you were praying to God who just gave you something you asked for for so long, wouldn't the center of your prayer be, thank you for giving me what I asked for? But instead of that, it's actually the holiness of God that she centers her prayer on. 
She identifies God as being uniquely holy and that there is nobody in all the universe that can be placed in the same category as him. Which is exactly why she can say, there is no foundation, there is no rock like our God. There's nothing worth building your life on besides him. Because he is holy, we can trust him. We can actually let our life be built on him as the bedrock of our own because God is holy. So let me ask you, do you truly exult in the Lord? Or do you simply exult in the things that he gives you? How can you even answer a question like that? How can you tell? Well, here's a simple test that we can learn from the life of Hannah. Just look at what you do with what God has already given you. How do you use it? Hannah was able to dedicate Samuel to a life of service in the tabernacle. Why? Because she was exulting in the giver, not the gift. And that's what allowed her to do the most unthinkable, difficult task of walking away from her son because she loved the Lord more than anything. Now, how are you functioning with the things that the Lord has given you? Do you have a closed fist gripping with all of your might to keep those things the Lord has given you? If your heart exults in the Lord, then you can be generous. Then you can be hospitable. You can be liberal with your time. You can use your car to give rides. You can use your kitchen to share meals. You can use your skills and your craftsmanship to care for others' needs, not just to enrich yourself. Exulting comes from finding joy in the fact that a holy God saved you. She is exulting in God because of the salvation she experienced in him. What is that? Salvation means that God has saved you from something. What do you need to be saved from? If you're visiting with us or if you're not a believer here today, I want you to know the Bible tells you that you are in a very precarious position. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ and you are still in your sins, the Bible says that when you die, you will stand before a holy judge, one that does not let one sin slide by, and that he will by no means clear the guilty. If you stand before God, then you are going to have to acknowledge that you have fallen short of his glory and that your actions have by no means measured up to his perfect standard. You will not be measured by what you determine is good. You will not be measured by the goodness of your neighbor. You will be measured against the perfection of God himself. And because of that, all of us stand condemned. Everyone. There is no one righteous. No, not one. That's you and that's me. But there is good news that the scripture has for people like us that God has made a way. You see, a holy God demands a holy people. None of us are holy by right. But God provides what God demands. And God has made a people for himself. He has purified and sanctified and made people holy. How? By sending Jesus Christ, his son. His own son who would come and who would live a holy life and who would die in the place of sinners like you and me. Who would take our sin upon himself and who would pay for it. He did die for the sin of people. And he did rise again to prove that that payment was valid and that he was able to give righteousness and holiness and purity to all who come to him in faith. So if you are here and you are not a Christian today, thank you for joining us this morning. The most important thing that I'm going to say to you and the only thing that necessarily applies if you are in that state is to hear what I am saying right now and trust in the Lord Christ for your salvation. Everyone who comes to him, he receives. So come to him in faith. Believe that you are a sinner in need of salvation and you will be welcomed in as a brother in Christ.
There's one last item that I would like to touch on before moving away from this idea of exulting in God and how it can make us hold everything else on earth loosely. Uh, In keeping with the theme of what's going on here with Hannah, I want parents and grandparents in this room to think about the way that we view our own children and raise them. You see, we live in a time and in a place that puts extreme emphasis on things like training children for success in the workplace, education, college, career. That's the path that parents are thinking. That's what we want. We want what's best for our children. And parents, your job is to train your children, first and foremost, to love and honor God with their lives. It is better for our children to be masters of faithful Christian service than to get a master's degree. It would be better for your child to grow up being righteous and committed as a Christian and to struggle to pay bills for the rest of their lives than to be a well-to-do person who lives for trivial, earthly, temporary matters. It would be better for a person to die at the age of 22 as a martyr on the foreign mission field than to be an unsaved, brilliant businessman who dies of old age with billions of dollars in the bank. Do we think that way about our own children? Do we think of what ultimately is most significant? In particular, parents, one of the greatest stifling effects on raising up and sending out missionaries comes through parents because we teach our children that everything else is more important than laying down our lives for Jesus Christ in the way that we teach them, not just in our words, but in what we are living for. They are looking to your example, and your home is Jesus Christ first. It's our calling to recognize that God has given these children to us so that we might train them for his glory. And the only way that you will ever be able to do something like that and to view their lives like that is to see that there is a greater treasure than even the most precious gift of your children, that God has given you himself, and that you are to train up your children as arrows to go forth in the world for him. One of the things that I am so grateful about with my parents is that when I was a young child and I said I was interested in missionary work, They fostered that in me. They encouraged that in me. They sent me. They did everything they could to help develop that rather than the occasional time my dad would say, I think you should be a dentist. (laughs) If I was a dentist, I would have much better teeth. But God desires for us, not every one of our children will be missionaries or pastors or preachers, or, but every one of us should be desirous that our children would be useful for the kingdom of God and promoting his glory above all else. Point number two, God exalts the humble. James chapter four, verse six, and 1 Peter chapter five, verse three, both say the exact same words. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, Hannah said that very same thing over and over in this passage, just using different words. Look at verse one for a moment. She prayed, my horn is exalted in the Lord. When you look at a pen of animals, farm animals in particular, things like goats or cows, one of the things that you immediately, your eye is drawn to is the ones that have horns. And we, I think, as people have learned to pay attention to things that have horns because horns are very dangerous. Uh, Probably one of the main things that is in view here of the purpose of a horn is is the effective element of protection that is given to the creature by their horn. 
The idea is that God has preserved and protected Hannah. He defended her when nobody else did. He guarded her soul, so she continues and says, my mouth derides my enemies. Now, deride is another word that I don't use very often. In fact, I don't think I have ever used that outside of a teaching or preaching moment. And so I think oftentimes when people hear words like this that have negative connotations, our immediate response is to associate it with other words and other meanings. So when you hear the word deride, if you're anything like me, I immediately, my mind goes to something like evil or hatred. I think, I think negatively of them. I am able to speak boldly against them. Well, that's not actually what deride means. It's not a combative word. It literally means to laugh something off. Literally translated, it says, I'm able to open my mouth wide and smile to my enemies. That's a pretty interesting way to describe what's going on. This means, remember what her circumstances are, this means that this other wife that's married to her husband is probably still doing the exact same things that she was previously doing. I mean, now that Hannah had a baby, do you really think that their relationship is now perfect? We know that the main thing that Penina was continually needling Hannah about was the lack of her, uh, her lack of children. Per, but Penina had perfected the art of tormenting Hannah. But now that Hannah is trusting in the Lord, Hannah is able to hear those insults and shrug them off with a smile. She is able to deride her enemies. When Hannah humbly submitted herself to the Lord's will, he exalted her. He lifted up a defense for her. What can anybody say now, Hannah? They were all accusing you of evil because you couldn't have a child. But now, what can they say? He raised up a defense for her. But even more than that, her heart has now been changed. So that when people say these things, her response is not to be tormented. Her response is not to be face down weeping on the ground. Her response is that now because she knows the Lord is the center of her life, she can shrug it off. She can laugh it off. She can receive evil with a smile. When we get to Jesus saying, love your enemies, that is really hard. That is a really hard command to do. How can someone ever do something like that? It's because the Lord is able to do a good work in your heart that allows you to see when your enemies speak like this of you and to be able to shrug it off. What we're going to do now is we're going to do a brief running commentary as we make our way through the remainder of this prayer and see the ways that God continually opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Verse 3 says, walk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Now, there are some people who display their pride even in the way that they walk. Like, you look at them and you're like, that person, they know they're something, right? But that's not what this is talking about when it says, walk no more very proudly. That's not what she's getting at. Here she's using a Hebrew idiom about walking being a way of life. Don't have a way of life that is proud. You might have an outward appearance of humility, but she says, look, God is a God of knowledge and he knows your actions. He's the one that weighs them out in a balance. You might have everyone else fooled to think that you are a humble person, but he knows who you really are. Do not walk proudly. Matthew 12, 34 tells us that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So if you are walking proudly, eventually you will probably be talking proudly. But Hannah puts a very fiery warning in the middle of a dark night like a 
an arrow that is on fire to express a clear and present danger that comes from walking with pride. We must not do it because God is constantly watching. And he is not fooled by any attempt at false humility. He sees the intention of your heart. And throughout the rest of this book, this is foreshadowing exactly what's going to be going on in the lives of David and Saul. One who actually has genuine humility and one who does not. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Now, I find this section fascinating because this is one of the few times where Hannah's poem breaks its pattern of reversal here. Normally, it's a complete reversal from the first line. But if this was a perfect reversal, it would say that the Lord takes bows away from the mighty and gives them to the weak. It's like a more militaristic version of Robin Hood. But he could say something like, he breaks the bows of the mighty and makes the feeble strong. There are many places the Old Testament says things like that. But it doesn't say that. Instead, it reveals a very important truth that God is going to break the power of the mightiest people on earth. Yes and amen. But the feeble are going to continue being feeble unless they bind themselves onto strength. If I try to run as fast as I can to Manhattan or to Montauk, I am going to quickly run out of energy. I'm not going to get very far. But if I get into my car and I'm, I'm then able to drive with immense speed and the power of 280 horses, why? Definitely not because I became more powerful, but because I bound myself to something more powerful. He says, if you want to be more powerful, bind yourself to something more powerful. She is speaking about her relationship to the Lord. And as we make our way through 1 Samuel, everyone who ever tries to do anything in their own strength, even the mightiest of men like Saul and Goliath and Nabal, every last one of them is brought low. But every single time someone who is small or weak or lowly trusts in the Lord and binds themselves to his strength, he always causes them to be victorious, Hannah being exactly Exhibit A. Verse 5 says, Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Now, to be clear, this is not a condemnation of anyone who has wealth. Hannah is continuing the theme of those who don't rely on the Lord. But there is a truth to that that sadly, many times, when we have financial means, we sometimes fail to realize that the facade of safety that we build around us, can come crashing down in a single moment. Look down to verse 21 for a second. It says, Indeed the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now amazingly, Hannah ends up having five or six kids, depending on whether or not Samuel is included in the list there. Some scholars think he is, some think he's not. I don't know. But that number is five or six. Now, you who have been listening through this series should be overjoyed for Hannah. I mean, you, you heard the turmoil she was in, and you should delight in the fact that God blessed her in this way and see the, the greatness of God's kindness in her life. What an amazing gift. Five or six children. But do you know what she didn't have? She didn't have seven children. In fact, when she prayed this, this prayer, she only had one child, and she had just given him away. So you might find it strange that in the second half of verse 5, it says, the barren has born seven. 
But she who has many children is forlorn. Hannah is using a very common form of Hebrew poetry here that uses the number seven to represent completion or perfection. She does all of this by using agrarian terms. This is farming terminology. She paints a picture of herself and of Penina being like a field of wheat. And she says, the field who had nothing is now abundant, but the one who was fruitful and multiplied is still desolate. What's interesting about that is when she is praying the prayer, she is walking away from a temple with no children in hand. But Penina still has all of her kids. Yet she can say, I am the plentiful one, and she is desolate. I find it really interesting because it seems to me that Hannah was able to see that Penina, with all her children, was still unsatisfied in her soul. Verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Now, this should grab your attention for more than just the reason of the declaration that life and death are sovereignly governed by God and God alone. That is certainly true. This is why David is able to tell Goliath, the battle belongs to the Lord. It's because God kills and God brings to life. But what I hope you notice is that these things seem to be, to the natural eye, out of order. Hannah does not say that God gives life and then brings about death. She starts with death and then says that he gives life. In other words, there's more here than just the natural order of the life cycle that we can observe here on earth. Hannah is foreshadowing exactly what will occur at the cross. The Lord kills and he brings to life. Now remember, at this time, there has never been a resurrection from the dead. At this time in universal history, zero things had ever died and come back to life. Yet Hannah, echoing exactly what Abraham believed, Trust that God does actually have that kind of power. And Hannah is also displaying an old covenant shadowy understanding of the promise of everlasting life. That God brings down to Sheol, meaning the grave, and he raises up. Death, therefore, is not the end. It's just a doorway into glory for the believer. Verse 7. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit seats of honor. The people that God chooses to serve him in this book, they are the weak. They are the lowly. Hannah, Samuel, David, many others. He takes the small and the seemingly insignificant people in the eyes of the world and he elevates them to prominence in the kingdom. That is the consistent pattern of God's saving work. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29 says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. And look around the room. That is true. <laughs> Not many were powerful. Look around the room. That is true. Not many of you were of noble birth. Look around the room. That is true. But God chose what is foolish in the world in order to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God draws the weak and the lowly. Now, for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, we are given commands that we are to humble ourselves. That's where we began with this passage. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 continues this thought, and it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, 
so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. See, God exalts us in a different way than we exalt him. When we exalt him, we can only verbally lift up his name. When he exalts us, it's what happens when we make ourselves absolutely low, when we bring ourselves to the ground, when we say he must increase and I must just decrease. At the proper time, he lifts up those who intentionally make themselves low. We are called to humble ourselves. Now, as we make our way through this book, the main contrast that we're going to see is between Saul and David. Saul is a man who would never humble himself. But David is a man who would. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But the point that Hannah is making is that both of them got their role because God elevated them to the throne. Now, this is an important application. Consider it a, a side note to the text, but I think important for many in the room. I have to tell you, I am so glad that we're going to be go going over this book for the duration of what is already starting to be election season. Every week, we're going to be seeing how the ruler is placed in their position by the sovereign hand of a good and gracious God. Even now, in this congregation, I hear chattering and concern about candidates and parties and primaries and rallies. There is nothing intrinsically wrong with those things, and I encourage you, be involved in political things. But every time we have a national election, it seems so easy for us to get worried about who is going to be in office because we lose sight of the fact that God has the only vote that ever gets counted. And Hannah tells us exactly why. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He's in charge. Presidents and governors and rulers and authorities, vote for them. In fact, I would go so far as to say it's your Christian duty to vote. But remember, politicians make bad saviors. Even when you are disappointed by who wins in the election, remember the words of Hannah when she says in verse 9, He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked will be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. The church victorious is not the church that is in the Oval Office. The church victorious is often the one that is being martyred on the streets. She continues and says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the end of the earth. Nobody gets a pass. In other words, the king that we have rules over all of the other kings. The wicked rulers of this world can't overthrow him. They can't hide from him. Every king will give account to the just judge. God's enemies will be broken to pieces. God is not silent. He is not ignoring them. Verse 10 says that he thunders against them. I like the way that Psalm 2 puts it when it says, when the nations rage against them, he sits in the heavens and he laughs at them. <laughs> they think they can do something? Isaiah 40 says that all the nations together are like a drop in the bucket. If every single one of them joined in unity against the Lord, they would still fall far short. So yes, vote, but trust in God when the results come out. Point number three, God exalts his son. The very last line of Hannah's prayer says, he will give strength to the king, to his king, and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now let me ask you, what king is she talking about? Do you remember the very last verse of the book of Judges? We read it a couple of times recently. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. First Samuel takes place in that culture. There is no king. 
Yet she says that God is going to give strength to his king. Hannah is clearly looking forward in faith to the fact that God was going to fulfill the promise that he had made to give a good king that would set up a good kingdom. This promise is seen many times, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17 and 18. And she was trusting that God would indeed elevate a man to the throne to rule over them well. But she describes the king as God's anointed. Now this is really interesting because this is the very first time in the entire Bible up to this point that the word anointed is used to speak of a king. Prior to this, there is only one person who has ever been given this title, and that has always been the high priest, and it's not always given to the high priest. It is only given to the high priest when they are carrying out their high priestly duties, specifically in regards to sacrifices and atonement. Now we see for the first time that God's king is also going to be anointed. Now this is foreshadowing the fact that Jesus is going to be prophet, priest, and king. Perhaps you know that the word anointed is the word Messiah in the New Testament or the the word that it is called Christ. Anytime you see that word Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a kingly title of divine authority described to him because he is the fulfillment of Hannah's prophetic promise along with many other prophecies that God would anoint a man from among them who would rise and serve as a good king. And Hannah in faith is looking forward to that. We're going to see types and shadows of this in 1 Samuel. David is a type. He is a shadow of the good king to come. But we are looking beyond David to David's greater son. We're going to see this most fully fleshed out, for example, in places in the New Testament, like Acts 10.38, where it says, quote, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Roughly a thousand years after Hannah prayed this prayer, another woman with a divinely gifted pregnancy would pick up Hannah's prayer. She would seemingly study it, and she would formulate her own prayer from it. Last week, I told you that I believe Hannah is the second greatest woman in the Bible. The one who was in first place is clear because Luke tells us that it is Mary who among all women is most to be blessed. Listen to how Mary starts her prayer after she spent several months of pregnancy, patiently awaiting the arrival of her own Messiah, the anointed king. She, she says in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and following, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. If you go back to the very beginning of Hannah's prayer, this is almost exactly identical in terms of thought. For what has God done? He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. God has opposed the proud, but he gave grace to me, the humble. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought the mighty down from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. I hope that sounded very familiar. Because every single thing she is saying is the fulfillment of what Hannah had been praying God was going to do. When she begins to pray these things, she's speaking of them in the past tense. God has done this thing. Hannah, what you pray for, God has done it. And he was doing it through her, giving birth to the Messiah, the anointed one that Hannah prayed for, the king that she knew a thousand years before was eventually going to come. Notice that even Mary herself, I, say, I speak of Mary and I speak highly of her because the Bible does. 
I recognize that there are many people who have taken that and they have idolized her. They have turned her into a wicked form of worship. Listen, Mary was a sinner. If you are from a Roman Catholic background, I want you to know that she was a sinner, just like you and I. We see that in the very first line of her song in Luke. My soul magnifies in the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She needed a Savior. She, like you and I, needed a Savior. Mary's Savior, Hannah's Savior, they are one and the same. And if you are a Christian, he is your Savior too. He is the Son of David, the anointed King, the true Messiah, the Christ. And they called his name Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Hannah's prayer. We thank you, Lord, that it was born out of years of learning in the school of sanctification that she experienced by way of suffering. And Lord, I ask that you would please cause each one of us to hear these words and to exult in God, our Savior, that our hearts would be filled to overflowing with joy, that we are acknowledging that whatever else happens in life, that you indeed are worthy of our praise and that we should be delighted that we are yours and that you have set your affection upon us. We also pray, Lord, that that would cause us to live with loose hands, willing to release anything that you have given to us that we might serve you with it. And Lord, I also pray that it would cause us to humble ourselves before you, acknowledging that you alone are holy and that you alone can save. And Lord, we thank you that all of this was done through your son that you promised to exalt And that just as we read earlier that we are to humble ourselves, we thank you, Lord, that Jesus did that perfectly. And that because he humbled himself and became a servant, that he came in the form of man, and that he was willing to serve even to the point of death, even death on a cross, that because of that, you have now highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess on heaven and earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.